The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Thanks for joining me. You can go to the Good Grief host page at Voice America to find links to Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and you can also listen to every Good Grief show we've recorded in the last year. Today, I'm welcoming Jessica Nudick-Zitter. Jessica is a San Francisco Bay Area physician who's board certified in both critical care and palliative care medicine. Although she completed her training at the best medical centers, she was shocked at how ill-prepared she was to help patients die well. This propelled her to enter the world of palliative care medicine before it became an official subspecialty. Her writing has been published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Huffington Post, The San Francisco Chronicle, Journal of the American Medical Association, The Journal of Palliative Medicine, and The Journal of Participatory Medicine, among others. Her medical training including an, included an internal medicine residency at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and a pulmonary critical care fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. In 2005, she co-founded Vital Decisions, a telephone counseling service that helps patients and their families participate actively in making decisions about their medical care at end of life. She currently attends on the ICU and palliative care medicine services at Highland Hospital of the Alameda Health System in Oakland, California. And she's hard at work on her first book. She can found, be found at jessicazitter.com. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much. One thing that fascinates me about your work is the integration of palliative and uh, emergency care. Um, I I think of those two things so separately. You know, you're either uh, doing the emergency intervention or palliative hospice. And I wondered if you could talk about how those two go together for you. Well, that, that's a great, it's actually intensive care. People frequently think it's, it's emergency room, but it's actually the intensive, oh, intensive care. care. Um, My mistake. It's okay. I, you know, um, about 10 years ago when I started really getting involved in palliative care and trying to find a new way to uh, care for patients in the intensive care unit, I had a uh, chief of medicine who I knew, a uh, personal friend of the family, who said to me, um, you know, it's a conflict of interest for you to be practicing intensive care and palliative care because your patients are going to be deceived into um, believing that you want to prolong their lives, but you're going to have this ulterior motive. And that was very, very striking to me. Um, mm. And unfortunately, much too prevalent 
um, uh, thinking if in, in those days. I think it's slowly starting to change. But in the beginning, when I started doing these two types of medicine, uh, people would say, what? what? How could you put those two together? And now more and more people are saying, of course, those two should be paired together. So it's changed. It, well, especially considering how many people although they might want to die at home in comfort, end up in, in ICUs. That's right. Yes? That's right. It's um, phenomenal what uh, a large percentage of patients die in the intensive care unit. The numbers are, are staggering. And um, the, but I'll tell you from a position of an ICU doctor, the numbers are nothing compared to the visual of watching somebody die uh, an ICU-style, uh, non-beneficial, life-prolonging on machines death. Uh, it's very, it's very disconcerting yeah. and disturbing. You know, I, uh, I know you know that my mom just died. Hers was an at-home, in-hospice death. My dad died five years ago after a fall. His brain stem was severed, so, and oh. he died in an ICU. And what I found interesting about that experience is we very quickly were prepared to let him go. Yeah. But it seemed to me as if the medical personnel, they weren't resistant, but they seemed very surprised. That's right. That's right. That's <laughs> Just right. very surprised that that was, and, and it was, an, <laughs> excuse the pun, no-brainer for us. Yes. That's a um, very, Yeah. So, so that really was was quite surprising to me that we would be ready, but it's not that they weren't ready. It just they weren't prepared for us to say we need to let them go. It goes very much against the uh, ethos of uh, modern day uh, aggressive medicine, whether it's an ICU type of intervention or a surgical intervention or using chemotherapy or something that you do to patients. We subspecialists uh, are trained to use tools, and we just um, have not been trained to use them in context, but just trained to use them, and we're pretty good at it, but we don't necessarily have the training about when it's appropriate and when it's not. I almost might have might have said, though, too, that uh, at least a few of the, the people we encountered seemed relieved. They yeah. weren't going to help us get there entirely. But when we were there, they seemed a bit relieved. Could that be true as well? I would say absolutely. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been caring for a patient with a whole team of doctors. And we're going, you know, the, the, there's been a uh, almost a conveyor belt approach to the patient. And all of a sudden, usually it's me uh, because I'm the attending. I'll say, wait a minute, let's just step back for a second and think about where we think this patient is going and, and what are the, the options that will really make a substantive, substantive difference in this patient's um, uh, life. And when we decide that we have come to a point where there are no further curative uh, in, uh, interventions that will be of, of benefit, it's a relief to understand the prognosis and be able to come to the family and say, listen, at this point we have not been able to cure this disease and now it's time for us to, you know, consider what would be the most appropriate next step, whether we should change the goals of care or not. And it's a relief just to figure that piece of it out of the physician. And then if the family concurs and everybody is on the same page, 
uh, about not doing non-beneficial traumatic things to a patient that you don't think is going to benefit, it is a tremendous relief. Maybe this would be a good moment for you to read that excerpt from the article uh, that really does talk about the medical profession and and what, um, you know, a little bit about how complex this is for your field in a way. Absolutely. This is a piece that was written in the San Francisco Chronicle um, several months ago, um, and it's called We've We've Lost the Age-Old Ability to Help People Die. And it's a story about a patient who really was dying, and it, and we determined as a medical team that it was just not going in the right direction, and we sat down with the family um, and did what is generally not done, which was to really have a hard conversation with this family about what, our, what we believe the realities to be, even though there still seemed to be some, you know, some, the patient was still alive, but we decided to really sit down with this family and talk with them about where we thought things were going and help them think about what would be the most appropriate decisions and goals of care to set for this patient. And so um, this is coming towards the end of that article. But those with the information, doctors, aren't talking. They're so busy trying new treatments that they don't have the time to break bad news. Finding a conference room to meet in is difficult. Coordinating with the other busy medical services to lend authority to your message is like herding cats. Family members can be angry, scary, or just plain disappointed in you. Your pager continues to alert you to your other patients' crises, and when you throw in the interpreter services and the Kleenex boxes, you've passed the tipping point. Plus, it feels mean. It's easier, cleaner, and it just feels better to reassure patients that there is something else to try. And the patient or family is appreciative. They have forgotten that death is the foregone conclusion of all life. They can't imagine what lies in store for them. They haven't seen death wreck body and soul as it pulls a person away towards the inevitable. They don't understand that we have perfected the art of plugging patients into life-prolonging machinery until they die, alone in a nursing home, unable to care for themselves, and most likely in pain. And so when a harried resident asks a family member if they, quote-unquote, want us to do everything to save your loved one, it would take an unusual person to say no. And so patients get pulled onto the ultimate conveyor belt. Most cancer patients get chemotherapy within two weeks before their death. Elderly Medicare patients visit ICUs multiple times over the last months of their lives. Many die on machines, which hum away as they take over the role of failing organs. We have a serious problem on our hands. Doctors aren't talking and patients aren't asking. The resultant suffering is gruesome and heartbreaking. Let's do something about it. That that's, uh, makes me feel so, I, I almost want to say it makes me feel so relieved <laughs> um, about both of my parents' deaths uh, because in my dad's case, of course, we took as a family and mostly my mother took charge of disconnecting all of that within mm-hmm. a very short time. And with her, she made the, the decision to suspend treatment get hospice and die with a tremendous amount of peace. And so I feel both those experiences are maybe a bit unusual and very blessed in a certain way. Absolutely. You are an unusual family. Um, This uh, unfortunately doesn't help uh, happen as often as it, nearly as often as it should. And patients usually are 
intimidated and bewildered in the sort of headlights of death and, and dying. They don't know what to do, and they trust their physicians who are running in and out of the room doing things that they must have something else to do that would be helpful. And it's the unusual family like yours that says, wait a minute, we know, we've already talked about this, we as a family know what the the values and goals and priorities of this patient are, and we know what would be acceptable or not. And so patients don't come to these situations armed, patients and families, armed with uh, uh, effective and and, and appropriate decision-making tools and completely unempowered to interact with the healthcare professionals taking care of them. And the other thing I want to say, you know, uh, it takes a certain amount of fortitude, I guess, because it's not a conversation in either case that was, we were given information, but in both those cases, we had to say, you know, with my dad, it was my mom saying with our support, uh, with my mom, it was she herself saying no more. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't um, the the medical people saying perhaps no more is an option. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so I wonder if you have developed ways to because I think there's a, a conversation broaching itch issue, mm-hmm. uh, getting conversations started in this, mm-hmm. and obviously you must do that because you put these two types of care together, what have you found works in terms of really bringing those issues out, often in a situation where people are scared and, you know, in an unfamiliar environment and and all of that? Well, here's the encouraging uh, piece, which is you can learn how to have these conversations. I um, actually had to learn how to do it. It wasn't anything that was second nature. It was, in fact, uh, something that I shied away from. I went into the ICU to save lives and to be successful at doing things that would help patients. In my perception, that was prolonging their lives. So to have these kinds of conversations just went against the grain of what I thought I was supposed to be doing. And it was only uh, uh, when I was at uh, University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey uh, Hospital, University Hospital there, that I was taught uh, in a sense trial by fire by one of the palliative care nurses, Pat Murphy, who's a very strong presence in the movement, um, that what I was doing was completely unacceptable and some of the things I was doing to patients were completely unacceptable and uh, some of, and I was very resentful because I thought, who is this woman to come in here and tell me how to practice medicine? And as I started to listen to her and then she started to show me different ways of having these conversations, I just became so obvious to me um, that you needed to, number one, have them, and number two, that there were certain steps that could be taken to introduce the conversation conversation. One of the the most important thing before even taking a step is being able to understand that you have to, in a way, jump off a diving board because in order to have difficult conversations of any sort, you sort of have to take a plunge of sorts and you have to take a deep breath and say, I'm about to tell somebody something that they don't want to hear. And it's really 
it's really hard because you know that person is going to be angry and devastated and you know that you personally feel responsible and, you know, you, you, you might feel like you've failed the patient. Um, so, so I think it's first and foremost preparing yourself that it's not, you know, that you have to take a plunge and you have to say it. And second of all is being able to say it directly but compassionately and saying, first of all, asking the family, what do you think is going on? What is your understanding of the situation here? And really listening to what the patients and families are saying about what they think is happening. And much of the time I find that they really don't understand the situation well, which you wouldn't expect if someone's not a medical person themselves. Sure. And they don't understand the future and the prognoses and the options for treatment. And so then you can go into it and explain it um, and, and be very honest about where you think things are going and what, whether or not there are treatment options and whether or not they would be of benefit or burden and talking about both the benefits and the burdens. And mm. then saying very honestly, I'm very concerned and I'm very, and I'm very sad to give you this news and I'm, you know, and being really honest about. So you have to, you have to bring in your humanity in a way. Right, right, right. And also be direct. Yeah. It's time for a break, but when we come back, I want to continue talking about this, but also hear something about what drew you to the work. I have a feeling it's about more than just encountering this one nurse. Mm -hmm. So listeners, in these few minutes, Go to my host page at Good Grief to find all kinds of ways to be in touch with me. And if you want to find Jessica's work online, look look at jessicazitter.com. Be back soon. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Jones, the host of Good Grief, and today we're talking with Jessica Nudig-Zitter, a physician and expert in end-of-life decisions and ICU care. And during the break, you uh, 
you were telling me about a patient you encountered pretty early and um, that had come to your mind in, in our discussion, the first segment. Would you like to tell the listeners about that? Sure. Uh, you, you had asked why it is that I started getting into this work, uh, having been trained as a pulmonary and critical care uh, doctor, why did I start thinking about doing palliative care? And I always think back to a very early um, stage case that I had when I was an intern. It was my third month of internship, and we one of the things that is drilled into our heads as interns is what to do if there's a code blue, which is what happens when someone's either their heart stops or they're uh, unable to breathe on their own. And there's a whole lot of protocols that we mem- that we memorize and uh, need to perfect and have them in our in pockets in our car cards in our pockets. And I remember the code blue uh, alarm going off, and I was so excited because it was my first uh, code blue. And I was running up the hall, and there was it was very very dramatic with all the doctors converging on this one room. And I was thinking who this could be. Would it, would it be a heart attack, fifty year old man who? was dying of a heart attack or a young woman with an asthma attack. And as I ran into the room, I was just horrified and shocked to see this body that was yellowed and completely uh, no fat, uh, almost looked like a skeleton. I couldn't tell mm-hmm. if it was a, a woman or a man. And it was there was a resident fellow, res, actually fellow intern uh, doing chest compressions, and I could hear the ribs cracking. And we had a patient who was just a chronically ill patient who was essentially no functional status for the past several months, was living in a nursing home, uh, complete end organ damage, no kidney function. And um, as we kept going and reading the chart over the course of this code, I realized more and more everyone was like, oh, this patient's, you know, this patient was already dead. This is not going to help. And then someone said, well, why don't we call the code? And the senior resident said, well, let's just give it another three minutes so we can call it an even 30 minutes that we've been doing this. Mm. And I was very struck by that case. I won't forget it. It was distressing, uh, to say the least, to really be, it felt like performing assault and battery on a, on a dead body. Mm. Mm. I, I, that, that just creates such a, a big image in, in my brain, you know, right. as if I were there. It's so, um, and, and that's not uncommon, is it? No, unfortunately not. Uh, hopefully, hopefully there's more and more awareness of the importance of thinking about goals of care and and futility um, and less, you know, m- m- a little bit more than there was. And obviously, institution to institution, it varies, but it's still alive and well. Do what part of that, if any, do you think fears about? being accused of malpractice might play? Uh, is, there, is there any sense you feel in danger if you don't do the last possible everything? Or is that not in it? I, I think there's a component of not even necessarily getting sued, but wondering what your colleagues, what other people in, are going to think about you if you didn't try this and didn't try that. Because, uh. you know, you're never, at least in... You, you never really feel like you're going to be faulted if you try something. But if you don't try something, you are. it, it just feels that you're going to be more likely to be questioned. And, you know, we have M&Ms and CPC meetings where we talk about cases that have gone wrong. And our focus is never on uh, 
sort of goal goal setting and 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 realistic decision making it's always really on whether or not the patient lived or died mm-hmm. and so there's always again something else to do and if you haven't done as much as you can until the patient just died on their own then somehow you you feel like you could be set up for criticism in a way the more tubes and and needles you leave in a patient's body there's more uh, evidence that you were there and you were trying uh, mm. than if you slowed down I thought the way that you described both of your grandmother's deaths was really poignant in this way of the potential for being criti- criticized yeah. And I wonder if you could tell a little about um, your first grandma, that your experience with your first grandmother and her death, and then read the section about uh, your other grandmother. Absolutely. Uh, my grandmothers died about 10 years apart. Um, the first grandmother died when I was a resident uh, in Boston, and I, my grandmother was up in Montreal, and um, we went up to visit her, and she had had the colon cancer and had the, the colon resected, and she was doing very well after surgery. And we went back to visit her on the, the next, or two days after her surgery, and uh, on the way back to the airport, and uh, she was clearly, it was Canadian Thanksgiving, so there was no, there was a skeleton staff on service, no one around, and uh, it it was like a scene from a horrible uh, movie where you've got the empty halls in the in the hospital and something terrible is happening. There was nobody around, and she was dying. She had gone into shock. It turns out that her colon had opened up, and she was in in shock from um, uh, colon perforation. Mm. And so it was horrible. I was a resident, and I really had to struggle to get uh, people to listen to me. But once people heard that she was dying, it was out of my hand. She got lifted right onto that conveyor belt, taken right into the operating room, and they were very... You said aggressive. the magic words, in a way. Magic <laughs> words, right. And she lived, you know, she stayed in the ICU for about six months, and then she went on to live another 10 years, and that was actually relatively easy. Uh, my other grandmother, by this point, I was already an attending and, and practicing ICU, and also palliative care by this point, and um, she uh, had dementia and was very, very elderly, and had, we had all decided that we knew she would not want to be kept alive um, at this point, and we had her enrolled in hospice, and she, was, uh, she developed pneumonia, and I came to visit her. So this is really the, the story about what happened when I got to see the second grandmother. When I arrived at her bedside, she was delirious and short of breath. A pulse oximeter next to her bed showed that she only had 79% oxygen saturation in her blood, a critically low reading. It was a Friday night, and déjà vu, only a bare-bones crew was on. Where was the nurse? Why wasn't Grandma being given medication for her shortness of breath? Why wasn't her delirium being addressed? Why was a pulse oximeter on her finger when what mattered were her symptoms, not her numbers? Again, I snapped into action. This time, I wasn't trying to save a life, but rather to midwife my grandmother through her death. But this time, I was unable to rally the troops. My request for help from the nurses was met with resistance and distrust. I had to fight for a dose of morphine for my grandmother, even though it was ordered in her chart to be given as needed. When it was time for a second dose, my request was followed by whispers at the nurse's station. The rest of the evening played out in a tragic war with me as the villain. My grandmother died the next morning, not as calm or comfortable as she might have been. 
It has taken me years to come to peace with the way I was perceived by other healthcare workers during my second grandmother's death. They were suspicious of a granddaughter who was not fighting to prolong her grandmother's life, her grand, her grandmother's life. To them, my requests for morphine triggered the notion that I was trying to shorten her life further. And in parentheses, opioids do not shorten life in patients at the end of life, a common myth even among doctors and nurses. These two experiences were so diametrically opposed that I knew I couldn't simply, it couldn't simply be about me. As a little punk resident, I was able to rapidly mobilize an entire surgical team within a half an hour to save my first grandmother's life. Later, as a highly trained ICU attending physician, I struggled to get a dose of morphine for my other grandmother as she lay gasping for breath. It says something about the way we practice medicine, that it was easier to mobilize the medical troops when I was rushing into a life-prolonging battle than it was when I was working to ease the inevitable. It's just so um, uh, heart-aching, you know, because, yeah. because even in the situation where you were highly informed and prepared and you all agreed and you knew what you wanted it was still so terribly difficult to get it to happen that's right that's right it was heartbreaking Mm. and it could have gone so much better and and i i guess when i read that i imagine that must have very much reinforced your commitment it uh if it, it it didn't it didn't spur your commitment but i can only imagine it would have reinforced your um, desire to to get these kinds of issues talked about in the medical field. It certainly does. I not only with my own personal stories, my grandmother, my own personal family members and friends, but I've had this experience multiple times as a as an attending, um, where my approach to managing patients um, that really doesn't just uh, tend towards a do everything approach sometimes gets um, gets put down or uh, is treated with a little bit of distrust, and um, that's very difficult. But at the same time, I, I have to bring it back and think about how I would feel if I was in that bed or if my family member was in that bed, and how important it is to try to change culture. And I know for myself that it is very complex, and some of the things I've read that you've written capture that so well. Uh, For instance, uh, almost three years ago, my mother almost died of something completely unrelated to what she just died of. And it was a very, uh, she had a hemorrhaging ulcer, Mm. and she should not have lived through it. Mm. Um, Nobody that was taking care of her understood how she did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they wow. were all kind of visiting her. To, How did you live through that? But she did, and uh, I would say those few years after that were were very beautiful years. Mm-hmm. So it leaves me with a kind of um, pulled, um, a sense of being pulled in two directions. Mm-hmm. Because in that case, that was. Uh, certainly extremely expensive and, you know, all the rest, but it did lead, like with your first grandmother, to a period of good life. Right. Uh, So how do you differentiate that in that moment of crisis? Lots and lots of talking and thinking about a case. Um, Having always worked in, um, in environments where I don't have to think about cost, 
uh, whether it's, you know, county hospital with a lot of charity care um, or a place with a high, you know, Medicaid, Medicare population. I really, I, I, I just, this, for me, this, these issues aren't even about cost. They're about what's right for the patient. And there are so many situations for, I can tell you a great story, where you don't know what is really going to happen with somebody. Um, and in a situation like that where you're not sure and there's a reasonable chance that somebody could survive something. As an ICU doctor, I say, go for it. I mean, we, you know, I'm as aggressive as, as, as the next. Um, if there's any doubt whatsoever, let's, let's go for it. Let's try mm-hmm. to save this person. But I, I will tell you that that isn't that common. Um, most cases where the, most, the types of cases I'm talking about are, are cases where it's absolutely obvious, obvious. that, uh-huh. you know, Either the patient really already is demented, and so whatever restoration of their life um, we could achieve, they may not have wanted to live as a demented person, and only the family could know that. Um, sure. you know, a lot of times family haven't even thought about that because they've never been given the opportunity to have that discussion. So you have a demented patient who comes in in septic shock, and you need to sit down with the family and say, look, you know, we're never going to get her back to anything better than she came in here with before she became septic. Um, and people have never even thought about that. And they say, well, she, she wouldn't want to live this way for the rest of her life. She certainly wouldn't want to be put on machines to prolong her life. Um, and so that type of patient, it's something that really needs to be discussed. And then, of course, there are many other types of patients who have very, very end-stage disease, and their functional status is already so, so poor, like this patient that I told you about before who we did the right. code on. They're, they're already so so depleted that going through a trauma like a code or a septic shock is is not not compatible with life and their likelihood of, of surviving that is 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 essentially zero so those are situations where it's just clear and everybody knows what is happening but there there are certainly cases and that's what the ICU was built for where we're not sure and in those situations go for it. We have should go for it. And once we have more clarity as time passes, then we can reassess the goals with the family. Mm. Well, the, there's something in parentheses here, I think, and maybe I'm just thinking about this because of a couple of the guests I've had. Um, I had a guest from the Conversation Project and another from a company that produced a game called My Gift of Grace. Yeah. They're, they're both... Uh, uh, they both work with how to initiate family conversations, mm-hmm. which which I have to think would really intersect with the medical community because just watching what uh, we were able to accomplish in my family because we'd had those conversations, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, it just seems like that's another piece of the puzzle. And you're you're trying to have those when the person is right up against it. And there's a certain sense of emergency about it, That's not right. not when you can really contemplate. This work should be done way upstream for the benefit of everybody. To be making decisions like this in a crisis is is very very um, difficult and. Uh, in some ways, unfair to everybody involved. It's not. It's not um, calm and careful decision making. And I think, uh, as Pat Murphy, this nurse I was telling you about, once said, you know, one of the things we do in the ICU. She's a palliative care nurse who worked in the ICU. Mm-hmm. Is we 
we're scooping people out of the water who should have never been thrown in in the first place. Mm. Um, you know, that you need to go upstream before people are debilitated like this when they still have their faculties and go through all of these what-if scenarios that the conversation uh, project thinks about and that my gift of grace thinks about. That what, well, what would you do if we were ever in this particular type of situation? Would that be acceptable to you? Would this be, well, maybe this would and maybe this wouldn't. Okay, so then once we get there, we'll have to reassess. But just to have had those kinds of conversations is extremely important for families because they're not left with the profound guilt that I see all the time as people try to figure out what their loved one would have wanted but never really had that conversation. Yeah, and you you can't, I know the imprint of actual words from the person. It makes such a huge, huge difference Absolutely. to have heard in their voice what they wanted, yes? Exactly, exactly. So let's talk, that leads right into the company that you helped to found, I, I feel. So after the next break, let's talk, uh, uh, let's start with that, if that's Great. okay. Um, so listeners, take the opportunity to be in touch with me, and if you want to know more about Jessica Zitter, go to jessicazitter.com. Be right back. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. My guest today is Jessica Nudick-Zitter, an author and physician whose work towards balancing quantity and quality at the end of life has contributed to the conversation about end-of-life care substantially. So uh, I really want to talk about the company you helped found. I have, I have um, it seems so exciting and also uh, left me with some questions I'd love to get answers to. Can you can describe to people what the company does and how they do it? Sure. It's a company that does uh, telephone counseling for patients with uh, serious uh, life-limiting illness, Um, and it helps them with uh, thinking through 
what's going on, understanding the realities on the ground, uh, empowering them to speak with their physicians to get more information and to transmit their own personal values and goals to the physician to enhance decision-making. Um, it, it was started uh, by... Uh, in a different form by a friend and colleague of mine who's a bioethicist uh, at University Hospital in New Jersey, um, Helen Blank, and she uh, ingeniously figured out a way to uh, get herself into, um, to, to get herself uh, accepted as somebody who would help with bedside discussions um, for patients with a certain health insurance, and um, she would come in and, and talk with the families and the patient um, and try to help them with thinking through the situation. And it was just very difficult in terms of the logistics because, as you can imagine, a lot of these patients are critically ill, so you come in and their family happens to be taking a lunch break and they're sleeping or... Uh, there's many reasons why it wasn't working very well. And so she uh, figured out that she could um, maybe convert it into a more of a telephone-based approach. And that was just at the time when I came and was introduced to her. Um, and we started uh, systematizing it and coming up with a strategy to really uh, figure out how to approach people sort of with a methodology that incorporated all the most important things in terms of them and their thinking and what was important to them and understanding how they uh, wanted to, to make decisions and how, how what was going to help them with decision-making and, and empower them. And so we uh, started doing more and more of these um, consultations by telephone and developing a methodology that um, that incorporated uh, a lot of uh, the more important decision-making skills that, that, that are known to exist out there um, based on some research methodology for behavior change and started hiring more and more um, uh, counselors. And at this point, it's, uh, I'm no longer involved with the company, but it's doing very well, and uh, they've done tens of thousands of consultations. That's called Vital Decisions, yes? That's right. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I was intrigued with in part was, um, you know, there's all this kind of um, concern about, uh, I don't know, when when Obamacare came out and people were afraid of death panels. And is there any concern anywhere about uh, people, your company, the the company you were a part of, being hired by insurance companies to have that? conversation? Um, you know what? I, you're fading in and out, I'm sorry to say. Uh-oh. Um, did you hear the question? I did. I, I did, um, and I can answer it. Yes, in the beginning there was hesitation, um, and we really, you know, were very clear about what our intentions were, which was to simply help patients understand the territory and learn what the issues were and talk to their physicians. And it was really uh, comforting to everybody involved that this was not about any uh, decision-making, encouraging any kind of decision-making. It was about empowering patients to understand the territory that they were navigating in and help them think of the questions that they needed to ask their physicians. Mm -hmm. And so there was no decision-making piece. There was no... um, it was it was really about education um, and uh, advocacy and helping them, re- you know, uh, approach their physicians in a better patient family uh, physician decision making um, team, and uh, we were that we were just so there to be supportive. Yeah, that just seems so exciting to me. You know that there's some entree. Um, you know, uh, for instance, my, my mother was at UCSF, a highly educated environment, uh, 
the doctor she had and the staff were wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And I still have to say that when she decided to suspend treatment, even though it was doing a little something, uh, it wasn't an easy conversation. So the fact that we were prepared really helped, (laughs) you know. And so I imagine it can start either end, either the informed patient or the healthcare worker who's willing to initiate the conversation, either way can really get get it started. I think it's I think that two pronged approach is essential because I think as we try to change the medical culture, which I've already sort of explained to you in the first segment, um, we we really can't rely on that for all the people who are coming into this situation now, all the baby boomers and their parents, and we we need to have people prepared now. And so I think combining. Um, change in the medical culture with uh, more of a layperson um, awareness and empowerment is this key. Mm-hmm. I, I got the impression from uh, one of the things I read that you wrote that there is starting to be quite a change, though uh, much more likely you'll have a conversation with other uh, healthcare workers about not wanting extreme measures. And... Um, the story about the the tattoo really i thought captured that so captured that so well could you share that with the listeners sure uh the story about the tattoo uh-huh it was a i was at a case a conference actually um about mindfulness in the intensive care unit and there was um a group of nurses unfortunately there weren't that many doctors there were some but it was almost almost all, all nurses and we were sitting at lunch and talking about it and commiserating and you know, talking about how it's sort of um, not enough people who really think uh, in the way that we were thinking at that conference uh, in the intensive care culture. And one of the nurses said, well, um, I, you know, they're not going to touch me. Um, and I, I said, what do, you, what do you mean? She goes, I have a tattoo. And, and she pulled aside her shirt and showed me uh, right over her left breast. She had a tattoo that said, no code, and I, I was shocked, and I said, really? She said, yeah, I just I don't want to take the risk that my family's going to be dealing with me stuck in an ICU and not being able to help me do what would be important to me, which would be not be on medication, uh, on life support, and um, I said, Are, do you have a lot of other tattoos? And she said, no, I hate tattoos. I, this is just something I felt was really important to do. So um, it was quite striking and uh, shocking because I'd heard this threat made many times by other colleagues, but I had never actually seen anybody do it. Um, <laughs> so this was unusual. A radical um, so step. Here's, uh, the... <laughs> right. That's right. Um, this mother of three from the quiet suburbs on the other side of the tunnel was fighting a revolution. Not the type the Beatles sing about, but quiet, private a statement, an act of defiance. In most parts of her life, she lived among the many, behind her white picket fence with her husband and her three children, a place where there were no tattoos, no piercings, no loud music at night. But although she lived outwardly among them, she would do her best to die differently, her out-of-character tattoo hopefully acting as a barrier to unwanted medical interventions. She respected the choices of others and did her professional best to honor their goals, even when they differed from hers. If the patient's preferences weren't clear, she would work tirelessly alongside the doctors to prolong life at all costs. As an ICU physician who also practices palliative care, I was conflicted. 
What if she had respiratory failure from a terrible pneumonia, which may recede with the use of high-powered antibiotics if given enough time? Wouldn't she want to be put on a breathing machine? What if she was hit by a bus and was hanging on by a thread? Wouldn't she want to have paramedics, ER physicians, and trauma surgeons do everything they could to bring her back? I wasn't even sure that first responders would honor the tattoo, but she was resolute. If I'm that sick, I want them to let me go. Although I'm still not sure how I feel about her choice, I do know that the act of making a choice itself is revolutionary. Most of us do not take an active role in determining our fates at the end of life. We subscribe instead to the myth of perpetual life. A comfort, yes, but a fantasy nonetheless. Our doctors and nurses, like Mary, are well-trained to enact that myth and do so much of the time. And so, with our eyes on the unattainable goal of perpetual life, our bodies are taken away on a conveyor belt of suffering. Mary would fight for her beliefs with her metal bracelet and permanent ink. She aimed to protect her body from the well-intentioned practitioners who might participate in a myth that she did not ascribe to. Quite a... Quite a uh brave act, but also, uh, you know, we, we're used to thinking that we're only scared of death, but I work with cancer a lot, and uh, I find that if I really get down to it, what many, many people are afraid of is pain and degeneration, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. more than they're actually afraid of being dead. That's right. That's right. So, and they uh, and they should be because there's so much suffering and, and it's profoundly distressing to watch and to yeah. obviously to experience. And so, in in some way, everything we're talking about fits with the broader conversation about um, giving death its place back. Right. That's right. Um, do, what do you think? What do you think medical, uh, the medical community, of course, that's not all one thing. I do understand <laughs> that. But right. what's the trend? Is, is there some kind of, um, you know, in, in my world, of course, there's a lot of discussion of this. You know, there's um, uh, uh, Katie Butler's book, mm-hmm. you know, about about it and many others talking about the importance of recognizing death and informing our lives with it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel that change is also kind of beginning to permeate? Uh, obviously, with her, she'd given all of that very serious contemplation um, and and done something to honor her own wishes about it. But could could you say that's more generally true than when you first started? I think when a medical student, for example, or a resident sees a different way of doing things and they experience uh, an ability to say, wait a minute, shall we or should we change goals of care with this patient? Should we change the care path here? And let's, should we present to this family that this is actually not going in the right direction and maybe we should alternate or switch out our goals of care to something that's more comfort-focused? There is palpable relief in situations where, where it's obviously um, clear to the team that that, that that is appropriate. I think we practice um, 
as physicians, um, a type of medicine we have been, and I think it's changing slowly, but we've been practicing a type of medicine that doesn't sit spiritually very well because uh, I don't know if you know the, the data on physicians and how they die, which is very, very different from how they have their patients die. Physicians don't do uh, the types of things that we do with our own patients with these uh, treatments that often are futile. Physicians don't engage in those types of things for themselves and their families. Um, they have more days on hospice. They have um, uh, less suffering. Mm. And I think that that's a fascinating thing. It is. It's very. Dis- it's it's very disturbing actually when you think about that. It's not. And again, it's not that that. It's in a sense, it's not that physicians are getting more aggressive care, more costly care. It's quite the opposite. Um, but it is uh, something that we do automatically to practice this type of medicine, this sort of prolonging life medicine, do everything medicine um, that's just been ingrained into us. And I think when we have a vision of how to stop it, it's a relief. So I think I think as as it becomes more prevalent, as palliative care be, gains more of a foothold, I think we're going to be seeing changes slowly but but surely in the way that uh, physicians think about death and dying. I and remember I saw a movie a long time ago called The Doctor, where the doctor got sick and uh, got cancer and got treated, healed from it, but then did a program where all of the uh, medical students had to put on hospital gowns huh. and and be in um, in the hospital pretending to be sick. Right. Uh, and so I sort of feel as if, you know, you're you're a voice for since you have had these experiences, I'm sure you impact your colleagues and I'm sure there are more people who who share your viewpoint. It it's heartening to me to think that that's beginning to spread out. I think it is. I think it is. At this mindfulness conference that I was telling you about uh, for the ICU, mindfulness in the ICU, we did an exercise where we were asked to close our eyes and to think about our own death. And um, it was incredibly painful to imagine the, the, the family members left behind and to imagine mm-hmm. our funeral and to imagine what that would be like. And I remember I was crying, and I, I think there were several other people who were teared up uh, as well. And I think it's only when physicians themselves can be in touch with their own deaths that they can help other people be in touch. Nobody wants to die. I mean, this is not what I'm suggesting, but it is a reality. And if we can connect to that reality, I think we're more able to help other people connect to theirs. That's a beautiful place to end. I want to thank you so much for being with me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, I I have as well. I'm so appreciative of your having me on. (laughs) You bet. Um, and and again, find Jessica Nudick Zitter at jessicazitter.com. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. 
visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.